following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. Uh, that's towards the beginning of your Bible, if you're still learning how to navigate it. If you don't have a Bible, we will have verses on the screens. If you don't own a Bible, we'd be really happy to give you one for free. Just let us know before you leave, okay? Uh, so we've been studying the story of God's grand plan to rescue us from sin and death. Specifically, uh, the last several weeks, the calling of a man named Abram to leave his country and go to a place that God would show him. And the Lord told him that he would have more descendants than there were stars in the sky or sand on the shore, and that through his family, all of the other families of the earth would be blessed. So that's a, it's a cool promise. It's a big promise. It's also probably a little bit of an intimidating promise if you try to put yourself in Abram's shoes for just a minute. Uh, and so that's all well and good, but there is one problem. Uh, the first time that God said something like this to Abram, was 11 years before the events recorded in Genesis 16, which we're going to study today. And and so he's 11 years out from the first time God said this stuff to him, and he still has no offspring of his own. Uh, And that is is surely discouraging. We we read last week that Abram had started to, so this was in Genesis 15, he had started to reason that maybe this was a, a spiritual offspring situation. Perhaps his servant Eleazar, who he had influenced and he had surely taught him about the one true God, maybe, maybe Eleazar would be the one to continue his legacy. Maybe this was more of a, a spiritual thing God was talking about. But God said, no, that it will be one from your own body that will be your heir. And so <clears throat> what we see there is kind of the, an attempt to rationalize how God's promise could be true, that that attempt to rationalize it, it didn't work, even as the likelihood of a man in his 80s and a woman in her 70s conceiving a child seemed less and less with each passing day, month, and year. Uh, And and as I told you last week, I want to make sure we orient ourselves properly. We shouldn't be too judgy as we read this account, because Abram and Sarah, it's clear they, they wanted to believe in what God had said, they were just really struggling with the how, okay? And this is at least part of what leads us to the account that we're about to read in Genesis 16. I also, uh, out of care for you and a desire for God's word to do what it is meant to do in your heart and mind this morning, I want to issue kind of a warning and an encouragement here at this juncture before we read, because this chapter is wild, Uh, And I don't think it's going too far to say that we are going to see Sarah triggered in this chapter, and it causes her to lose sight of the big picture to some degree. And so I want to encourage all of you to, to stay with me as we work through this, rather than fixating on the wild parts of what we're about to read and then possibly missing the big point. I also know that as we're reading and working through this, you, you may have questions. I would encourage you to write those down quickly and then, and then dial back in and then come 
afterwards, and, and we can talk about questions or reach out this week, and, and we can look into those, <clears throat> those things if, if they don't end up being answered as we continue to work through. But I know how it is sometimes. I, I don't just preach sermons, I listen to sermons. And so I know my own tendency is sometimes that I'll hear something and it triggers a question or a thought or whatever, and then, and then you know, I realize 10 minutes later I, I've been over here exploring that thought in my mind and not <laughs> really paying attention. And there's, there's, a, there's a, a density to what we're looking at today that's going to require uh, some focus if, if we're going to get out of it what I believe the Lord wants us to. So I'm just... It's a warning and an encouragement, okay? There you go. Trigger warning. Ready? Genesis 16. Here we go. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarah said to Abram, may the, wrong done, may the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, behold, your maid is in your power to do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Royai. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Praise God for his word. Amen. Uh, we're going to start looking at verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> now, I know this idea that Sarah comes up with this idea for Abram to take her maid Hagar as a wife, it, that seems very weird to our modern ears. And, and I would agree that it is weird. However, this was a common practice in this time. If, if a woman uh, could not conceive, this was almost, this was almost a, a primitive combination of surrogacy and adoption is the way it worked. Someone in Hagar's position would become like a second-tier wife to this husband. So she's still a servant, but there's this recognition that now the relationship has changed, but she's not to the level of, of Sarah. She'd become like a second-tier wife to the husband, and if she bore him a child, it would be functionally adopted by someone in Sarah's position. Okay? 
And this is bore out through archaeological evidence, and there, there, there are reasons we know this was, these are not the only people that decided this is how we're going to solve this problem. All right? Doesn't mean it's not weird. I'm just saying this is the way things were done. Also, I want to say the Bible does not condone this or polygamy broadly. As a matter of fact, if you go through your Bible and look at all of the examples of otherwise godly people uh, participating in polygamy, it, it's, it always goes bad. Every time. All right. So not to say God doesn't redeem things out of it. That's God's an expert right, at making good, beautiful things out of our messes. Thankfully, I'm real thankful that's true, particularly for me. However, uh, we don't see the, the Bible saying this is a good idea that should be done. So it's important to keep that in mind. All right. <clears throat> and I think we need to have some understanding and compassion for where Sarah is coming from here. In this culture, in this time, women had one primary role, and that was producing and raising a family. That was very much the, the kind of a singular idea uh, connected to what women's purpose was, okay? And so if a woman was barren, this was not only a source of great shame, but a, a devastating blow to her sense of identity, all right? And so Sarah had that going on, but she had it even worse than the average woman to some degree because <clears throat> she was surely also feeling the pressure of the promise that God made to Abram right? It's not just this kind of average cultural pressure that was there, but then on top of that, we're 11 years deep into God saying, I'm going to give you an heir from your body, and through that heir and, and corresponding heirs, H-E-I-R-S, right? Heirs, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So there's, there's, there's some major pressure points here, all right? Um, you know, somehow God was supposed to bless all the families of the earth through their family, and she couldn't even produce one offspring. Um, and, and how Sari behaves moving through the chapter is probably also a result of the fact that there may have been some question in everyone's mind of why they weren't having children, right? There, there was no doctors that could have said conclusively, okay, well, Sari has a fertility issue, or Abram has a fertility issue, but then when Abram goes into Hagar and a baby is produced, now that question is answered. Okay, where's the fertility issue? It's, it's Sarah, all right? So that also would be very painful and hurtful for her. Uh, this pressure led Sarah to try to figure out a way to get the ball rolling. And it, it really doesn't take long, as we're reading, for the kind of frantic and not well thought out nature of this plan to reveal itself. I would say almost anybody looking objectively from the outside into this situation, they could see that this plan would lead to more pain and heartache. But Sarah was so tired of the pain she was in, she couldn't see that her attempt to get out of it was going to bring new and different and perhaps even greater pain of its own. That is not uncommon. It is not uncommon for people to get into a dynamic where they just don't want this pain anymore. And, and then they'll, they'll make moves without kind of 
the proper planning or, or consultation with the Lord. I mean, that's one thing you see missing here. You know, Abram had a conversation about Eleazar being the heir. Like, well, Lord, if you don't give, if you don't give me an heir, then Eleazar is going to be my heir. And God said, no, that's not what, I, what I'm talking about. But then Sarah brings this plan to Abram about, well, why don't you take Hagar as a second wife and maybe she can bear children for me. And there, there is no record of anybody stopping and saying, hey, Lord, what, what do we think about this plan? Right? It was like, let's, let's, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. I'm tired of this. Right? <clears throat> and, and so we also can see, as we unpack this, how this reductionistic cultural category that women were forced into, it cuts both ways. All right? It wasn't just dangerous for Sarah. It also ends up being dangerous for Hagar. All right? So let's look at verses 4 through 6. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarah said to Abraham, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly. She fled from her presence. Because women's worth and identity was so closely tied to bearing and raising children, Sarah was broken that she couldn't, and Hagar got prideful when she could. It cuts both ways. The overwhelmingly difficult nature of all of this is evident as, as Sarah starts to lash out at Abram for, for what is happening while in the same breath acknowledging that this was her idea to begin with. We're, we're looking at a woman unraveling emotionally here. She's having a really hard time. Okay? Because most of us can look at that, her, her coming to Abram saying, I did this, but may God judge you, right? It's like, hold on, Sarah, you okay? The answer is no, <laughs> she's not, right? She's having a real hard time, and it's exacerbated by the fact that because this idea of, of women being for this one thing, she's crushed as Hagar gets pregnant, and Hagar is now looking down upon her because I'm, I'm a real woman, and you're not. <clears throat> And, and instead of facing this polygamous poop storm that, that is brewing in his home, okay, uh, Abram just takes the coward's way out, the, the happy wife, happy life trope. Well, I mean, she's your servant, you know, she's in your power, dude. You know, he's, he's like, there, there was this cartoon in the, I don't remember if it was the late 90s, early 2000s, maybe both. It was on MTV. I probably wasn't even supposed to be watching it. It was called Daria. Yeah, yeah. Nikki doesn't know what that is. Um, and, and when I read, when I was reading this and thinking about it, it reminded me of this one scene that always stuck in my mind, the, the mom and the daughter, it's a teenage daughter and a mom, they're, they're arguing with each other, which that checks out. Uh, you, you know, <laughs> and, and whatever the thing is, and, and then the dad walks into the room and the mom goes, uh, whatever his name is, uh, call it Jim. Jim, tell Daria, and he, and he instantly like, talks over her, and he's like, oh, wait, I forgot about that creaky floorboard, all the way at the other end of the house, and he just turns around and walks out of the room. That's, that's what this is like. There's a major doo-doo storm happening here, and Abram's like, I mean, you know, do whatever you want, right? 
not, not a fine moment here. This is, this is the coward's way out, all right? Um, he, he could have sought to lovingly lead his family through this, but he doesn't. He abdicates his responsibility. <clears throat> now, I want to make sure we take a moment before we begin to unpack the beauty of God's role in all of this and how he comes to address it, because Abraham, Abram doesn't. You, I may involuntarily switch between Abram and Abraham. We're a couple chapters away. God's going to change his name, okay? So don't hold that against me. But um, right now, he's Abram, and <clears throat> Abram doesn't deal with it, but God in his great mercy does. And so we're going to unpack that and look into how God brings hope and healing into this situation. But um, I want to make sure before we unpack that, we take a minute to make sure we have a very well-rounded view of the problem here. Okay? I think it's important. So I think most of us sitting here, we, we can identify the problem or problems with this narrow culturally conditioned category forced upon women in this time. Like most of us can see it. It's reductionistic, it's cruel, it's, it's inconsiderate, uh, and it's not truthful, okay? So we, we, we can all see that. Uh, it was cruel and reductionistic to, to view women's value, worth, and identity only through the lens of their ability to produce and raise children. Um, and, and I think some would even be quick to link this problem, this reductionistic kind of cultural condition that we're seeing here, they would link it to a, a broader cultural idea that many would call the patriarchy. Okay? And this idea is commonly conceptualized as not only holding women down in the way that we're describing was being done here, but also elevating men to a place of superiority and tyrant-like authority. That's what a lot of people mean when they talk about the patriarchy. And I just want to say this before I say anything else about it, that there have been many who have operated in that way, and they've even wrongly used the Bible to justify it. And so what I have to say about that is pretty simple. That's sinful, and it's pitiful. Full stop, period. Okay? Everyone got that? All right. However, I I suspect it's possible that the the burn the patriarchy crowd, they might be missing the bigger problem. To just, just focus on that and think if we can defeat that particular flavor of cultural conditioning, then, then all of our problems will be solved, I think is, is in itself too narrow. I want to propose to you that the bigger problem is culturally conditioned categories devoid of gospel truth. And the idea that every human's identity is meant to be derived from the one who created them. I think the problem is actually bigger than some people think it is. Let me explain what I mean. I know (laughs) this this chapter is a minefield, okay? (laughs) And I chose, I could have gone a different route. I could have just, you know, said, hey man, you know, don't be prideful, don't be jealous, and don't try to rush God's timing. Let's pray, right? Or some version. That could have been the three points. I'm intentionally wading into this at a far deeper level because I think it's helpful and right for us to do it, and it, it's, it's meaningful in, in the time and place that we find ourselves in with what we're navigating today. These truths don't just apply to the ancient Near East, all right? So I know some of you are 
nervous about where I'm at right now, <laughs> but just hang in here with me, all right? Uh, <clears throat> let, let me say this statement again. I, w- I, want you to make, I want to make sure you hear it. The bigger problem is culturally conditioned categories that are devoid of gospel truth and the idea that every human identity is meant to be derived from the one who created them. Okay, so I'm going to unpack that. It is easy for us to all see how the cultural categories in Genesis 16 were busted. It is oftentimes very hard, however, to see our own with such clarity. If you don't have the truth of Scripture guiding you into seeing all people as worthy of dignity and value and worth simply because they are created by God and bear His image, you are then, if that's not how you come to your, you might say, well, let's just get rid of all culturally conditioned categories and all kind of definitions. That's not going to happen. Okay, That's a fairy tale. So let, let's just say that. But what, if you don't have this, this undergirding ethic that we are made in God's image and thus because of that simple fact alone, because we are made and loved by God, we have dignity, value, and worth. If that's not the guiding principle then you're going to have some version of being left with humans coming up with criteria for what makes a person valuable. And they may divide it up. They may say, well, this is what makes men valuable. This is what makes women valuable. They, they may put everybody in the same bucket, but you're, gonna have, you're just going to be left with humans in their time and place coming up with criteria to determine whether somebody is valuable. That is always a recipe for disaster. And, and I, would, I would say there, there is a remnant of some of these older, the, the, the problems with the, the cultural conditioning we see in Genesis 16, there, there are remnants in some corners of that idea even today. What am I saying? I'm saying there are, I think in some places, there, there's still this idea that survives, that women's value and worth and dignity is tied either solely or disproportionately to her ability to produce and raise a family. I know that still exists, so I don't want to make it seem like that's not still a real thing. But I would say largely, those false criteria for their value and worth has been replaced by some new and supposedly improved ideas that I think we should, first of all, be able to acknowledge, but then also examine, okay? In our current cultural moment, a woman's worth is not so much based on her ability or inability to produce and raise children. I would argue that much of it is based on her level of independence, self-sufficiency, and or sexual appeal devoid of any connection to producing or caring for children. I want you to think about that for a second. Some of you might be, well, I don't know, do you... Do you have any, in, any evidence for that? It's not academic evidence, but it's still, I think we can all be honest about how powerful a piece of evidence like this is, because many of you grew up with uh, several anthems that kind of perpetuate these ideas, okay? Uh, one goes something like, you don't pay my bills, you don't pay my telephone bills, don't pay my automobiles. Who's that? That's the queen bee, right? And I'm not here to pick a fight with the queen bee. It's really Destiny's child. Let's get it right, okay? Fair enough. 
Okay, that's just one example. You might say, well, okay, whatever, dude, that's a song. Don't, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool that things like that don't, have, don't influence the way our culture thinks. Okay? Don't, don't be naive. This, this, is a, this is a real thing. And all of the bad ideas that we're seeing espoused in Genesis 16 have largely been replaced by new bad ideas. Okay? So now the tables have turned to the degree that if a woman chooses to stay home and raise a family, she's seen by many as weak or a traitor to women everywhere. Because you're giving into the patriarchy. That's, that's equally, I'll just say in my view, I guess you can decide how you want to think about it. In my view, that's equally as pitiful as putting all of a woman's worth and value on her ability to produce and, and, and raise a family. To, to go to the opposite and say, well, if she, if she doesn't have a career and she's not independent, she's not self-sufficient and this and that, well, then, then you're, not, you're not embodying the fullness of what it is to be a, a woman. <clears throat> these are too narrow. And, and the Bible doesn't condone these narrow and reductionistic categories. The praiseworthy woman described in Proverbs 31 manages her home well and is savvy in business. Okay? And that is not to say every woman must do both. But it does show that this dichotomy is a false one. Okay? Now my point in all of this is simply to show you That when our sense of identity, value, and worth is not derived from our relationship to God, but instead by human whims throughout time, it will always be disastrous. That's really what we're talking about. It's it's a bigger issue than I think sometimes it it gets shrunk down to. And and I also want to make sure we understand that this this whole, in particular, this this idea about independence and self-sufficiency... It crushes men as well. Uh, how many of you men, I'm not looking for you to raise your hand because this pressure that I'm talking about is, I, I know is automatically going to try to get you to not acknowledge these realities, but <clears throat> uh, phrases like man up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, stop crying, Ex- stop expecting someone else to help you. Or one of my my personal favorite Bible verses that isn't in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. Let let me just, why why am I pulling that out? Because what I'm saying to you is, women aren't the only ones hurt by reductionistic, culturally conditioned categories. Everybody suffers. When we are not, when, when our definition of what it means to be a man and a woman or a human is not informed first and fully by our connection to the God that made us and the fact that we bear his image, that we are loved by him, that he, the grand judge of all things, the creator of all things, that he has placed upon us a value and worth, that, 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 that should not be able to be questioned and yet sometime, somehow we constantly do. And it's not just that we project these questions of value and worth onto others. Many of us sit in the darkness and despair of our own inability to grab a hold of the value and worth that God has placed upon us as his children. This is a big problem. It's not a little problem. It's a fundamental problem as a result of sin being in the world. Let me say this. A lot of you are going to really like this. This is is, going to be good. 
If you haven't been agitated yet, buckle up. <clears throat> the, the self-made man or woman, the, the idea of the self-made man, that's a fairy tale. I knew you'd like that. Let me, let, I, I, wish, I, I wish I was brave enough to just move on, but I'm, I'm going to explain myself. All right? Think about this with me. If you're successful in a career, someone had to recognize your potential and hire you. If you're successful in business, someone had to take a chance and loan you the money to start. Or, at the very least, many people, many other people had to believe enough in your product or service to buy it. Or guess what? You ain't successful in business. Now, I thought about, I want to, you know, I, I, I do sit, I don't just come up with stuff and like, oh, that, that'll zing them. I run myself through the meat grinder of like, all right, is that a real idea? And here's, I came up with one possible but highly unlikely scenario where I guess you could consider someone a self-made man or woman. Sure, someone could take an ax and a backpack and possibly go out and build some kind of like subsistence farm style empire out in the wilderness away from all other people. And they could possibly even thrive out there. But here's the thing. Even in that case, somebody else kept you alive until you were old enough to go live a completely solitary life. And we know this. 99.9% of people would go insane from the isolation after a while. Okay, Look, man. Hardened criminals. What do we do with them when we want to punish them in jail? Solitary confinement. Okay? So this, this whole self-made man, self-made woman, I did this, and I didn't even, I'm just talking about your relation to other humans. I'm, I didn't even get into the fact that when you inhale and exhale, it's by the grace of God alone. If, if, we, if we started there, the self-made man or woman automatically starts to sound foolish. But I, I didn't even get to that real spiritual idea. I'm talking about you know, just down in the practicalities of it. There's no such thing. But how much of what you're getting in your social media feeds and whatever else is, I'm a self-made this, and I can show you how to be a self-made this too. My course is only $199. And we'll break it up into payments for you with afterpay. We got you. So I know you probably don't have the money to fully make this bad decision right now, but we're, we're going to help you make it. Break it up in payments for you. <laughs> now, let me say this, because you, you may misunderstand me. I am not against all independence or personal responsibility. I'm a, I'm a big advocate of those in their proper proportion, for sure. But let's be honest. There are no truly self-made men or women. We were made to help one another and be helped by one another. Our God is a relational God and we were made in his image. And the hyper-individualism of our culture is just as narrow and broken as ancient cultures. It's just in different ways. And sometimes what we do as humans, it's, 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 so, it's so predictable that it's almost just laughable that this works on us. Because as humans, we, we so often just... We're on, we're on one extreme side of the pendulum in, in, in goofiness, and, and, and somebody goes, whoa, that's bad. And, in, and we just have no ability to like calibrate for something sane in the middle. It's like, this is bad. Whoop! Let's go over here. 
just in all areas of life, that's how we are, man. And I, I wish, man, God help us with that. At least, may at least God's people be able to slow our roll a little bit and realize, man, um, the exact opposite of a bad thing is not necessarily the, the right answer. Right? To just think, how do, I, how do I get as far away from this as I possibly can? Oftentimes you're going to end up in error in an opposite way. All right? We need the Lord's help to calibrate our goofiness some. All right? Uh, men and women are supposed to be allies in the fight against Satan, sin, and death, but the real enemy is unfortunately very adept at getting us to fight each other instead of him. And that's much of what this comes down to. All right, um, so I said let's, <clears throat> let's take a moment to understand the kind of breadth and depth of the problem. Now let's begin to move through verses 7 to 12. Um, there, there's, you know, Sarah's, Sarah's got this idea. Abram, you know, first of all, doesn't lead his family well by saying, hey, maybe we should ask God about this or anything. Just like, oh, okay. And then it starts to go bad, and he's like, well, I mean, do whatever you want. So Abram's not walking in his God-given role to lovingly lead his family. And so God, thankfully, uh, steps in to help. Let's read verses 7 through 12. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you are with child. You will bear a son and call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. He will live to the east of all his brothers. The, the kind of big picture first that I want to unpack for you is that God shows up and he shows Hagar that he both hears her in her distress and sees her in her distress. And here's part of why I'm saying that. First of all, if you read the account, every time Abram and Sarah refer to Hagar, uh, up until this point, they do not call her by name. It tells us in the beginning that she has a servant named Hagar, but they, Sarah just says, my, my maid, or uh, Abram will say, your, your servant. They don't, nobody uses Hagar's name. The first thing the angel of the Lord does, it says, Hagar, servant of Sarah. He, he's letting her know, I see you. You are not just the servant of Sarah. I'm here for you. Okay, that's, that's something that could be easy to miss, but was undoubtedly meaningful to Hagar. All right? So first he calls her by name. Uh, the other thing I want you to see, Hagar wouldn't have known this in the moment, but we should notice it. This is the first time in the Bible that the angel of the Lord appears to someone in this way. There's a lot of debate. I'm not going to get into all the debate about who or what this angel of the Lord is. But when you take the kind of aggregate of all of the mentions of this manifestation of God's presence, uh, you know, he appeared to Joshua, appeared to Moses, uh, you know, many different, <clears throat> in many different settings and in different ways. Uh, the Bible says clearly that no one has seen God the Father at any time. That's said clearly in, in multiple places. And so I would say most 
sane theologians would say when we see a reference to the angel of the Lord, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Okay, Because no one has seen God the Father at any time, but many people have seen this angel of the Lord. And, and he's talked about as if he's God. And so that somehow in this miraculous way, it's like Jesus was doing a preview of his incarnation and coming and meeting with these people in the midst of these difficult situations and when they needed guidance. Okay, So I'm with, I think, the majority here, if you care what I think. I think this... When the angel of the Lord is mentioned, that's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself, all right? But this is the first time, and it's to an Egyptian maidservant out in the wilderness, that that the angel of the Lord shows up in this way. That's a big deal. And then this angel of the Lord doesn't just come down and start laying out edicts and commands to Hagar, though he would have every right to. He starts with questions. What are you, what's going on here, right? Uh, <clears throat> he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, verse 8, where have you come from and where are you going? Okay, class, this, this is one of those, I'm going to lob you a softball here, ready? Did the angel of the Lord ask Hagar questions because he needed information that he didn't have? Yes or no? Okay, so what other purpose would he have for asking Hagar questions? correct and is trying to convey that and wants her to talk wants her to talk the angel of the lord wants hagar the egyptian maidservant out in the wilderness to say stuff and cares about what she has to say didn't need information okay whenever god or jesus whenever jesus in the gospels or or any god comes as or any angel of the lord comes asking questions trust and believe they know the answers there's something else going on okay What am I trying to show you? I'm trying to show you that God himself showed up to let Hagar know. He hears her and he sees her. The other thing that you may not know is the very name Ishmael means God will hear. And implicit in God coming and saying, you're going to bear a son, his name is Ishmael. Hagar heard God will hear. It's being conveyed right in that moment that I do hear you. I am hearing you. God has heard and will hear here, okay? Uh, <clears throat> and so, in, in addition, you know, some, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a caution in here for me as somebody that is in situations sometimes where people are looking for me to uh, help them think through what to do. Um, it, there's, sometimes we have narrow categories as well in, in many senses, um, <clears throat> and, and I think there's, there's many of you that might have been surprised to hear that what the angel of the Lord said was, go back and submit yourself to Sarah's authority. I think there's some of you that would assume, you, you would maybe in some situations say with a great degree of confidence, God would never want you to fill in the blank. And whatever your fill in the blank is, you might be more sure than you should be. I'm just saying that as a caution. I'm not saying that there's nothing that we can tell people for sure God thinks about things, but we need to make sure if we're sure, the word is sure about it. Because when it gets down into the specifics of people's lives, sometimes God will lead people to do things that would be, uh, how should we say, 
counterintuitive to what we would probably think. All right? Just a word of caution. Now, it doesn't, it's great that the angel of the Lord comes to let Hagar know that she is both heard and seen and cared for. This is also, in, just in this promise, right? And you, you surely see the echo of, of the promise to Abram in, in the promise to Hagar. But in that promise is, is implied the, the provision and protection of the Lord, right? Because if she's pregnant with Ishmael and God's saying, he's going, I'm going to make a great nation out of him as well. I'm going to bless him. He's, he's going to be, he's going to be kind of a, a, a butthead, right? He's going to be a donkey of a man. He's going to cause problems. And, uh, you know, all of that. However, he's going to be born and I have a plan for him, right? God didn't show up and just kind of make Hagar disappear back to Egypt and get her out of the story. I think that's how some people would have thought would have been a cleaner way to deal with this whole thing, right? Just, we'll, we'll just let Hagar go to Egypt and fade into obscurity and we don't have to deal with the whole Ishmael thing. You got to ask yourself, why didn't God do that? And as the story unfolds, we'll, we'll talk about it more. But that's, <clears throat> that's not what God does. What he does is gives her some promises, some prophetic promises about what's going to happen with this boy. And so if he's going to be born and he's going to have you know, a multitude of people come from him and all that, then, then part of what God's saying is, Hagar, I've got you. You're going to be okay. You're going to be provided for and protected. And, and your son's going to be okay. All right, and and it had it had to do with who was talking to her. <laughs> like you're gonna have to trust in what I'm telling you if, if you're gonna operate out of this. It it really doesn't have to do with can Abram and Sarah get their minds right in the middle of all the turmoil they're dealing with. That wasn't really on the board. The angel of the Lord is here talking with Hagar, and she's got a decision to make. I'm I'm either gonna trust what the angel of the Lord is saying, or I'm not. What happens? Well, let's look at verses 13 through 16. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. It's El Roi. E-L-R-O-I is is the literal translation of that. Uh, Something else, another first here and only, I think. Hagar is the only person. Hagar, the Egyptian maidservant, is the only person in the Bible that gives God a name and he allows it. She's the only one. Part of why I keep saying what I'm saying is it, it can seem to some people, I think, like Hagar's an inconvenient footnote to the redemption story. That's not the case. There's <clears throat> much more going on here than meets the eye. So verse 13. Then, he called, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. And so just in the simple fact that she gives God this name, El Royai, or you are the God who sees, tells us that she gets the message. Tells us, for her to say that to him means she got the message, at least a big part of the message he came to bring, which is, 
You feel abandoned. You feel forsaken. You feel cast out. But I see you. Not only do I hear you, name your son Ishmael, but I see you. You, Hagar. I'm here talking to you by name. I care about you. Okay? I, I know Hagar is not the only one that has ever felt as if no one sees, no one hears, and no one cares. But the God who sees has the same affection and his eyes are upon you in the same way they were upon Hagar. How, how can I possibly say that? Because he's promised that it's true and, and he's not a man that he should lie. Friend, whatever you're going through, however deep the anguish, however terrible the trial, God sees you and he hears you and he cares for you. You can trust in that. I, I can't promise you how the details are going to work out or if you're going to like them. I'm fairly certain Hagar's at least initial response to go back and submit to Sarah's authority was probably not, that's a great idea, Elroy, thank you. I didn't think of that. But there was something in the way he met her and there was something in the way he spoke to her that brought her a level of comfort and confidence in him that she was able to then consider that she could go back into that dysfunction and she was going to be okay. <clears throat> Hagar also gets an introduction here to the truth of the gospel. And, and you may miss it, but I, I am not going to let you. Notice what she says after this meeting. <clears throat> Verse 13. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? What happened? What was, what was Hagar's attitude prior to leaving the camp of Abram? She had gotten haughty and prideful about the fact that she had conceived a child and started to look down on Sarah as a result. Now, in the wilderness, she has an encounter with the angel of the Lord. And what is her response? Well, it's about time he showed up. I deserve a visitation from the Lord himself. No, no, no. She has the same response that every person with a shred of wisdom has when they encounter the angel of the Lord. Am I, am I alive? Undone. Realizing that so I, I shouldn't be alive after having been in his presence. Friends, that's, that's the beginning of the gospel. This understanding that I, in and of myself, whether I bear children or don't bear children, or I'm a man's man and I provide and I'm a business mogul, or whatever, whatever the things are that I'm thinking makes me good or makes me worthy or whatever it is, the, the idea that I, I deserve to stand before God on my own merit gets shattered when you have a face-to-face -face encounter with the Holy One of Israel. Every time. Hagar is no longer sitting here in, in, this, in this pride. She's like, am I, am I, did I really just survive that? Grace. She realizes mercy has been extended to her. She's starting to see glimpses of the gospel. First of all, it's that, and then, and then this idea that if he is with me, if he will protect me, then, then I, can, 
I can make it in hard circumstances. This, I, I, I've, I've been face to face with this angel of the Lord. And when, when he promised me, when he spoke my name, I felt a confidence and a comfort that I've never felt before. And now I can look at life and I can look at the hardships ahead of me and it looks different if he's with me. Don't think she came to the spring. Do you understand what it meant when she says she's fleeing the presence of Abram? Probably, we're guessing, we don't know for sure because we don't get inner monologue laid out for us. But but if if we had to guess, where's Hagar headed? Probably Egypt. She's probably going to try to make it for Egypt, make it for home, make it for something familiar. At the very least, she's just... And it may not even be that she had that much of a plan. It may just be like, I don't know where I'm going. I'm just not going to be here. Okay? And, and, and for us, in, in the kind of sanitized Western context and time that we are, it doesn't probably quite hit us the same. And I'm not, I'm not, I know it probably sounds like I'm mad about where I live, when I live. I'm not. I just want to make sure we identify the problems we have as opposed to just always being pointing our fingers at the problems they had, okay? So I, just, I, that's, I think part of my job. But what I'm saying is, it was a different thing for her to just roll out of this little nomadic camp in the middle of the Dagon Desert and say, I, honestly, whatever happens, I'm just not going to be here. That's different than, than somebody doing it here, a kid running away here, okay? There's like ample supplies around and there's social safety nets and you know, it's, it's just not the same to run away here and now as it would be to run away in the ancient Near East in the middle of the desert. <laughs> so that tells you where she was at. It tells you how frantic she was. It tells you how unplanned and kind of unorganized the, this thought was, all right? And how desperate she was. And yet, a visitation from the angel of the Lord, a conversation with the, the God who sees, brought her to a totally different perspective calmed that frantic kind of scurrying of the mind. And, and, and ultimately she learned at least part of what it means to hope in God. <clears throat> now, I found myself, maybe none of you have thought this, you know, I probably go too deep sometimes, but I found myself thinking, why didn't God just shut all this down, right? Because it's like the stakes are high. You understand, maybe you don't know this, let me, let me, let me lay this out. So, uh, the religion of Islam basically believes that Abram did promise the land, that Ishmael actually was the promised son, not Isaac. And that has set up a conflict between much of the Arab world and the Jewish people that rages on to this day. Okay? This, and that's part of why I'm trying to take you through this book with the idea that this is our story. This is not a fairy tale. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? You can trace the roots of, of a global conflict that, that still rages today to this goof up in the desert. To this polygamous poop storm in the desert. All right? But I, I had to ask myself, all right, so what if... First of all, to some degree, why didn't God just, you know, the first conversation with Sarah and Abram, hey, why don't, you know, maybe, maybe through my maidservant Hagar, she can give me children. Why, why didn't God just thunderbolt and come in? 
and to some degree, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to put myself on the same level with God. I'm just saying I, I can empathize with the frustration he probably feels sometimes. Because there, there's been many times I've watched people make decisions and do things and not ask anybody. And just do it. And, I'm, and, and a big part of me wants to go, hey, well, hold on. I mean, are you sure? But there's, and when I was a younger man, I probably did that a lot more. I'd be like, you know, they're, they're headed towards destruction. I'll, and I'll jump in front of them you know, and do this stuff. But man, enough times of, of just getting bowled over because you start to realize when, when people have decided they're going to do something dumb, if they're not willing to even ask, they're probably not going to listen when you try to jump in and tell them anyways. And not that God's going to get bowled over. He, he doesn't experience that. But there's an element in which, uh, and we even see this idea in, in the book of Romans, that <clears throat> there, there are certain situations where God in his infinite wisdom Let's people do what they think they want to do. I don't know if that has to do with what he knows about whether they would listen or not. If, if he came and said something, I, I don't know. But I do know that he knows things I don't know. And so that's part of why he didn't just shut it down. Because, and, that, and why, when you understand the Ishmael and the Islam and, and the conflict and how all of the pain and suffering that has come out of this snafu in the ancient Mideast desert... It, that, that question becomes, I think, more prevalent in your mind. Like, Lord, why didn't you shut this down? This, this seems like a lot, a lot of trouble has come out of this. Uh, and at least to some degree, I, I'm not presuming to be able to tell you all the reasons God did, dealt with this, how he dealt with it. I would never do that. But I think, first of all, you know, what, what if God did show up to Abram and say, look, man, don't do this, because anytime you try to save yourself, it's, it's going to go really bad. Would, would Abram have really even listened? Would, how, many, how many of you understand about ourselves? You know, we, we look at kids and their, their tendency to need to touch. You could tell them a thousand times the stove's hot. Don't touch it. Ouchie. Don't do it. Maybe not all kids, but there are some kids. I don't know. <laughs> There's only one way for me to really find out. Right? There's something about what it means to be human and broken. That tendency is in us. And man, it's fresh. I, I hate it about myself. But there's something to that. But here's, here's really what we... It's, the, the problem w- was even deeper than it appears at, at surface level. Because... What Abram and Sarah were really dealing with in their childlessness was, in one sense, it was, a, it was a functional hell that they really felt they needed saved from. It was, it was this, this singular driving thing that made them feel incomplete and broken and forsaken and, and angry and hurt and ashamed. This was, a, this was a functional hell for them. And what they ended up doing was looking to Hagar and the potential for her to produce a child as a functional savior. And here's something you need to realize. In all of your life, any time, anything or anyone you idolize, you will eventually demonize. Because anything that you idolize, is something, you're trying to put something or someone in a place to provide something for you that only God can. And then that thing will always fail 
and you will end up hating it for it. This can be your spouse, this can be your children, this could be your job, this could be your business, this could be all kinds of otherwise good and or neutral things that we have a tendency to slide up into the position where only God belongs. And then when it fails to do what only God can do, we end up hating it. Is that not what happened to Hagar? Look, here's an answer. Hagar can give us a child. And it's not even like Hagar didn't do the... It's not even... Oh, this is good. I just thought of this. It's not even that Hagar wasn't able to do the thing they thought she could do. It was that when she did the thing they thought she could do, it didn't have the effect they thought it would have. Can you learn something from that about yourself, please? Man, that would be helpful for everybody. Besides that, why didn't God just shut this down? Because friends, to to some degree, we got to remember this. God clearly cared about Hagar. He came, called her by name. Okay, the angel of the Lord called her by name, dealt with her on her terms, and, and, and brought it down to just the level of dealing with her individually. But it was never, this whole thing was never just about a little clan in the wilderness. Okay, it was always bigger than that. And there's something that all of us should learn from that as well. We, we get some interpretation of how to see some of this from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4. I'm going to read you. 10 verses right now, starting in verse 21, okay? Paul is trying to, he's trying to defend the gospel to the Galatians. And Paul, being a master of the Hebrew scriptures, reaches for something to help the Galatians understand the relationship of law and grace. He reaches for this object lesson that stands in the historical narrative to try to help them understand. Something that played out that would, that would show why grace is so superior to a, the attempt to save ourselves. I'll give you three guesses what story he reaches for. No guesses. Okay, I'll just read it. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. But the son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is speaking allegorically, for these women are two covenants, one coming from Mount Sinai, giving birth to children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is enslaved with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, infertile one, you who do not give birth. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. Paul is quoting the prophet Isaiah now. Rejoice, infertile one, you who do not give birth. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one are more numerous than those of the one who has a husband. And you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as But as at that time the son who was born according to the flesh persecuted the one who was born according to the spirit, so it is even now. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave woman, but of a free woman. What's my point? My point is, What was true for Hagar and Sarai and Abram in the desert 
is also true for us, and it's really helpful to keep it in mind. God has this way of dealing with people justly and mercifully, just in dealing with them, and, and he cares about them. It's not just that they are that they are pawns in a grander scheme. He cares for them and he deals with them, and yet they are a part of a grander scheme. This whole thing playing out in the desert thousands of years ago is, is meant to stand as an object lesson forever of what happens when you try to grab functional saviors to get out of your functional hells and save yourself. And it's not just the pain that Sarah and Hagar and Abram and, and Ishmael felt and Isaac who ended up in, you know, being picked on by Ish, all the pain right there in that little unit. But it go, the, the result of, of people trying to save themselves there is a conflict that still rages on today between the Arabs and the Jews. Ishmael and Isaac are still fighting. One thing I do find really, really interesting is that the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar in this way and the, the most prevalent accounting I hear of Jesus showing up to people in dreams and visions is him showing up to those that are of the Muslim faith. It seems really common that he shows up to them in that way to alert them of his care for them and, and his willingness to receive them by faith. You can do what you want with that. Some of you may not even believe that happens. I, I do. And it makes a lot of sense to me. Ties all the way back to Hagar. Okay? <clears throat> here's, here's some things. I'm almost done. Here's some things we can draw out of this. God sees you and me in the middle of the pain and hardships we're facing. He sees us. He is not just El Roy to Hagar, but also to us. But we must remember, however, that's true. We have to remember that though he sees and cares about what we are going through, it is never just about us. Part of why this saga was allowed to play out in the desert is that several thousand years later, Paul was able to grab for that and use it as an as a object lesson for the reality of the gospel and salvation by grace through faith. And the story of Hagar and Abram and Sarah in the desert, it, it rings forward to today and is teaching us today about what it looks like to trust in the God who sees and the God who hears instead of trusting in our own efforts and getting impatient and trying to, you know, look, I know, I know some of y'all have your own Ishmaels in your life. Some, some things, there's some consequences still lingering around from times when you thought, okay, God, let me help you get this done. We also learn from this that though God is gracious and merciful, there can be long-standing consequences when we get out of faith and get into trying to do things on our own. That's, that's a worthwhile warning that I'm thankful is here for us today. <clears throat> it is never just about us. This conflict that arose out of this attempt to save themselves from the functional hell of childlessness, it is still causing pain today. The whole account, this whole account, it should free us from the bonds of hyper-focus on ourselves, and it should remind us that our stories are woven together in a tapestry that spans all time and distance. What, you're, what am I saying? What you're going through right now is not just about you. Do you think Hagar and Abram and Sarah understood in the moment that 
4,500 years later, we would be standing here today examining these events and learning truth about God from them? I would say they probably didn't know that. Do you understand that unless you go live in the woods like our hypothetical self-made man or woman that we talked about earlier, your life is interwoven with other people's lives. And there is a lineage. Don't worry about it, Mom. It's okay. There's a lineage that's going to be affected by how you walk by faith or not. Okay? It's not just about you. And I know when you're in the middle of something like what Sarah's going through and Hagar's going through and Abram's going through, it can get very easy to just see the little confines of how this affects me. It is always bigger than that. Hagar went back to the dysfunctional family in the desert because she got a revelation of who she was and who God was. And it changed her view on everything. And that, friends, that basic understanding who she was, what am I saying about that? How do do I know she got a revelation about who she was? Because she said, did I just survive that? And she got a revelation of who God was. said, you're the God who sees. You actually, friends, get this. You actually just saw me, really saw me. And, And you were good to me? You had mercy for me? You didn't kill me? Wow. That's the beginning of the gospel. And that that basic understanding of who God is and who we are, that is the foundation upon which the specifics of the gospel rest. We must first understand who God is and who we are. And then it's looking at the specifics of, so what what does that mean? Who am I? Uh, I'm a sinner. (laughs) And uh, I have no right to stand before a holy God in and of myself. Who is God? He's a holy God that has the right to crush me. Uh, Okay, is there, that's good. Got that established. All right, that's, all right, now what? I need some good news. Well, the, the good news is that God has chosen not to just crush me. But he's chosen to offer me grace. And the way he did it was by sending the second person of the Trinity, the Son, to live the perfect life I never could have. And to die the death that I should have in my place for my sins. I have earned death for myself by my actions. But God saw fit to let Jesus pay my punishment. So that he gets what I deserve so that I could get what he deserved, which is righteousness and eternal relationship with God the Father. Those are the specifics of the gospel that lay upon that foundation of first understanding who God is and who we are. That's the problem. That's the bad news. (laughs) He's good, I'm not. Now what do we do about it? The only shot you got, friend, is to turn to Christ and to trust him. And I believe the same angel of the Lord that met Hagar in her despair is the one you can turn to today. And I know I'm talking to all different kinds of people. There, there may be some in here that you have never, you've never turned to the Lord in that way. You've never acknowledged that you're a sinner that needs a Savior. Some of you, it's been a long time, but that doesn't mean there's not a fresh application of you needing to have an eyeball to eyeball with the angel of the Lord in this way. And to, and to apply anew the reality of his care for you. And what it means, is that if he is the God who sees and the God who hears, then what does that mean for the situations that you're facing right now? The things you're tempted to spare in right now? The things you're feeling really hopeless about right now? It means something. I'll leave it for you to think about what it means. Can you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for Genesis 16. Uh, 
man, Lord, humans are complex, and I'm really sorry about how foolish we are sometimes. I thank you for uh, the ideas, the, the deep things that Genesis 16 gives us the opportunity to explore, to think about, to repent for. Uh, please help us, God. Help us not to be duped by the, the, the current cultural conditions that people put on men and women, humans, the, the things they try to tell us make us worth something. Please help us to cast those things off, both now and, and whatever the newest iterations coming down the line are. God, we don't want to be driven by the whims of humans uh, determining what makes people have value and worth. God, help us to rest in, help us to rejoice in the fact that we have dignity and value and worth and purpose in this life simply because you made us in your image and you have called us to be a part of your family and you have drafted us into your mission and that's getting the good news of the gospel to every corner of the earth. I thank you, Lord. I thank you that there are no other conditions that we need to meet to be seen as valuable and precious. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus didn't die for us if we live up to the cultural standards of our time. If we're manly men or womanly women, whatever that meant throughout the, the, the millennia, uh, and it changes all the time, Lord, that's how we know it's not real. That's how we know it's not true. Thank you for delivering us from that trap, from that hamster wheel, and for allowing us to rest in, in the simple fact that if you know us, if you see us, and if you love us, then we must be, we must be all right. Thank you, Lord, that doesn't lead us to some kind of haughtiness, uh, but, but greater and greater degrees of humility. Thank you, Lord, for showing us who we are and showing us who you are and giving us hope. Thank you that hope is in Christ alone. May we reach for that and live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.